The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out of life. And now your host, Kwame Christian. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Negotiation for Entrepreneurs. My name is Kwame Christian, and I'm a business lawyer, and I am passionate about teaching entrepreneurs like you how to get the most out of your business. Um, Before we get into our interview, I want to remind you about our free giveaway. It is a list of all of the things that are negotiable in your business and your personal life. So I made that so you can try and uh, negotiate and get some better deals on the bills that you're paying. So if you're interested in that, check out the website. It's AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com and then backslash list to get that list. So it's backslash L-I-S-T. And I have the um, the link to that in the description. And so on to our interview today. I'm really excited about this interview. Today we have Anthony Lolly. He is a successful real estate investor, developer, and entrepreneur out of New York. Um, in this interview, I want you to pay attention to how he was able to incentivize people in his network to help grow his company. Um, Also pay attention to his strategy for retaining talent within a competitive market. And lastly, pay attention to how he prepares for and protects himself in high-level negotiations. This is really good stuff, and I I know you all will get a lot out of it. And one quick disclaimer before we get started. We were having some connectivity issues with Skype during this interview, so if there's ever a time where a transition seems kind of weird, that was probably Skype, and uh, sometimes the audio might go in and out. And there is one time where uh, he said something that was important, and I knew what he said, but you wouldn't have been able to understand it because of the audio quality. And so at that point, I just tell you what he said, and uh, just to give you that context. So I'm just giving you a heads up. So uh, bear with us in this interview. The content is still great. I just wanted to let you know before we get started. Without further ado, let's get right into the interview. All righty. So we are here today with uh, Anthony Lolly, an incredibly successful uh, real estate entrepreneur out in New York. Uh, Mr. Lolly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So let's go ahead and get started with uh, your entrepreneurial journey. Well... Uh, where do I begin? I mean, I've been doing real estate 19 years. I started on my own. Uh, my father was a public school teacher, World War II veteran. My mother was an immigrant from Ecuador who came to this country with $20 in her pocket, lived in an abandoned building, worked in sweatshops, uh, became a home attendant, became a beautician, and then eventually became a housewife. So I come from very humble beginnings. So I'm half Ecuadorian and half Italian. Uh, no one in my family was ever in real estate. Everybody was uh, renting. And mm-hmm. uh, I was the first person to uh, really embark into a real estate career. So I started my career when I was 19. I was uh, going to uh, Kingsborough Community College because I'm a Brooklyn boy. So Kingsborough's here <laughs> in Brooklyn. Nice. And uh, so <clears throat> I decided to uh, take a real estate crash course and get involved in in real estate because one of my friend's fathers uh, who had been a stay-at-home dad 
for 30 years, believe it or not. Uh, and he, he was out of the workforce. He got his real estate license and became successful doing real estate. So I said, if he can do it, I can do it. So mm-hmm. I took a crash course, with, which at the time was one week. And uh, during that crash course, the instructor was raving about how much money you could make in real estate. He said, you can become an architect, you can become a developer, you can become a real estate broker, you can become a mogul. So I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, sir, if that's the case, then why aren't you doing it? And this is one of those times when Skype decided to fail. Um, At this point, Anthony said that the uh, instructor told him that he wasn't only the instructor, but he also owned the school as in the actual building. And now, back to the interview. At that point, I decided to pay attention and find my niche in real estate. So after I was motivated by seeing that even my instructor, who happened to own the school, was able to capitalize on the real estate economy, I decided to set some goals for myself. I said, what what do I want to do with this real estate license? You know, a real estate license is no different than a driver's license, you know? Mm -hmm. Some people do it and they... uh, just drive a car every now and then. Some people do it and they drive a taxi, an Uber. Some people do it and they get their, their driver's license and they become a race car driver and make millions of dollars. So it's the same you know, uh, course, different application. So I set some goals for myself. The first goal is I'm going to pass the, the school exam and the state exam and then work for a real estate company and learn the ropes. Mm-hmm. The second goal was I was going to rub elbows with investors and developers that I would meet because my real estate license allowed me to meet these people with a purpose. And I was going to ask them questions and pick their brains and pick into their network and talk about, ask them who their lawyers were, who their insurance brokers were, who their title companies were, their mortgage brokers, and really just dive into their biographies and learn about them and and make some friends and and get myself connected into the industry. The third thing I said was I was going to work for a top real estate firm and become a top salesperson at the firm. And then the first fourth thing I said was I was going to start my own real estate company and make it the largest real estate firm. And and then I said the, the fifth thing I said is, well, I'll be darn if I have access to all of this information, all of these people. And I don't own real estate. I'm going to own real estate. I'm going to become a landlord and a developer and manage my own real estate and rent my own real estate. And sure enough, everything that I put my mind to, I did, including starting a real estate school because I said I'd like to make $1.3 million a year uh, just, uh, licensing people to get their real estate license. So sure enough, I started uh, one of the second largest real estate schools in New York and we licensed over 40,000 people wow. uh, throughout the 11 years that was in. So I reached every single goal. I, I became a top salesperson. I started my own real estate brokerage at the age of 21 at my very first property that I ever bought. And then I grew my brand from one location to over 50 locations, and now it's a national company. Uh, My company was so popular that over 105 people have tattooed the logo on themselves (laughs) to show their loyalty and gratitude to the brand. Um, And then I also won almost every entrepreneurial award that you could win uh, in my category of of, of uh, entrepreneur and also in the franchising industry we won every franchise award that you could possibly win in addition to supporting over 30 different charitable organizations and foundations that's that's an incredible entrepreneurial journey how was your ability to negotiate and, and uh, make relationships with people 
part uh, a big part of your success because obviously you're very well versed in in real estate and you you know that industry like the back of your hand but how were you able to use those people skills to get ahead people skills are very important you have to be personable likable but at the same time not gullible so it's that careful balance you know i started very young in my career so i faced uh, i faced a different type of prejudice it's a youthful prejudice there was a time when i started rapid realty at the age of 21 that i used to pretend that an uncle that never existed owned it only because i didn't want people to not take me seriously if i mm. told them i was a real estate broker and i owned my own brokerage they wouldn't give me the business i had to pretend like i had somebody that was older and more mature telling me what to do so how how were you able to balance the uh the being likable and personable with being being respected because a lot of times people feel like they need to be super stern and they feel like it needs to be an either or so how were you able to balance that well i think being respected is is earned you know some people it depends on how you carry yourself it depends on what words you use it depends on uh your level of humility or non-humility depending on the circumstances it depends it also respect it depends on how much knowledge you have or research that you have before going into an interview. And an example would be if I was going to target a specific client, I need to know everything about their business and about them as much as possible. Uh, Wise, uh, I'm going in cold as just somebody that doesn't want to do my research, just wants to benefit from uh, the business transaction that I'm trying to close. Mm -hmm. So you get somebody's respect early on by learning all about them and because people work hard uh, to build whatever they have to, to then have other people recognize it when they call them, you know? Right. That makes sense. And one of the tips that I always give people when I'm, I'm teaching these negotiation courses is when they ask me, how do you protect yourself from being from being lied to? I say, do your homework. Because if people feel like you don't know, they'll treat you like you don't know. I was listening to your biography and in, there was one part that was really interesting to me because there was a point in your, as you were building uh, Rapid Realty, where some of your um, employees, your realtors, decided to ex essentially have a, a coup and uh, create rival companies. Um, how were you able to persuade those loyal, um, those people that were loyal to you to stay? If you're interested in the story behind the business headlines, check out Big Technology Podcast, my weekly show that features in-depth interviews with CEOs, researchers, and reformers in business and technology. Hi, I'm Alex Kantrowitz. I'm a longtime journalist, CNBC contributor, and the host of the show. I empty my Rolodex every Wednesday to bring you awesome episodes, so go check out Big Technology Podcast. It's available on all podcast apps. I'd love to have you as a listener. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Well, there was only a small amount of loyal people that stayed. 
Mm -hmm. So most people are attracted to a bigger uh, commission incentive. And that was all that people were offering. So all I did was I actually franchised my company as a result of that, because I realized that to some degree, you know, um, I didn't create a system that allowed people to stay because the, the most they could be is a top salesperson. And most people wanted to be me. They wanted to own. So I didn't have that outlet at the time. So I was breeding my own competition. So what I did was learn from that mistake and created a franchise. So now people can own a piece of the brand instead of wanting to create their own. They can now have an opportunity to own their own brand. So in other words, I created McDonald's and uh, this way people don't have to don't have to uh, create McDowell's like coming to America McDowell's, you know. I created McDonald's so people can actually own their own McDonald's. So I created Rapid Realty so people could own their own Rapid Realty. Right. That's a that's a phenomenal strategy. And I think that, that our, our listeners can definitely take a lot from that because essentially you just made the deal sweeter. You yes. Know? Because um, they weren't liking what the, the structure of the deal at the time. So you created the proper incentives to keep them. And still, um, with that created creativity, you were still able to retain a lot for yourself at the same time. That's phenomenal. Thank you. Um, can you talk a little bit about any interactions you've had with rival companies that you think got you ahead using negotiation skills or um, any kind of business savvy? Uh, well, you know, I really can't say I had any, any rivals or competing firms because when you're in your own lane, there is no traffic. I created a brand and a company that was unique. Uh, you know, whenever there is a gold rush, I wouldn't want to be heading to the gold rush. I would want to provide the, the pickaxe and the tools to the gold rush miners. Uh-huh. So I'm, I, I think out of the box that way. You know, when the, when the iPhone comes out, I don't want to create a competing iPhone. I want to make iPhone covers. Mm-hmm. So I tailored my business to be the world's first real estate rental franchise. I created a rental franchise where like all the other brands that are out there that you might have heard of, Century 21 or Remax, they're focused more on sales. I focused on rentals. And that's what really grew the company because when the real estate economy tanked, I actually exploded onto the scene because everybody was renting. Wow. So – but you, you do also own a lot of properties, is that right? That's correct. I'm an investor, developer, and I buy and hold. I don't sell anything. All I do is I buy and lease out. Okay, perfect. Can you tell us a little bit of your uh, negotiation strategies when it comes to um, purchasing properties? Well, I, I take a play right out of Jay-Z's book, Numbers Don't Lie. I tell <laughs> him straight up what the numbers are, how much money I'm going to make. And uh, and I get put in my offer. Sometimes I like to put in a very aggressive offer, especially if the property is overpriced. I you know, you if you don't ask, you don't know if you're going to get it. So I usually go in very aggressive on my offer. And uh, if I know that no one else is going to buy it because I understand the marketplace, I sometimes get the property at the price that I want. Mm-hmm. But if I know that the property is priced competitively, then I will buy it at the asking price. The real negotiation is within yourself because when you're looking at investment property, it all depends on how much money you're going to invest into it and what your plans are for it is really where 
where you're negotiating with yourself. You know, you have to have the gut instinct in knowing whether or not this marketplace calls for specific type of uh, of design and layout. Right. That's brilliant. And, and this is this is a trend that I'm seeing in, in all of the interviews, and I'm hoping that everybody's catching on to it, is that you need to know the numbers. It's, it's not magic <laughs> or sleight of hand. If you know the numbers, you can confidently make offers. And if you know the market, you can make offers aggressively. So that that's great advice. It, 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 listen, there's different ways, right? Like, you know, it depends on the type of investor and the player you are. Like, for example, I always compare it to the casino. If you go to the casino to gamble and you have $100,000 in your pocket, you don't really need to know how much you're losing because you planned on spending. You got you have enough money to have fun with. If you go into the casino with a, with a with a thousand dollars in your pocket only, you better know where you're at financially in order to keep playing the game. So mm-hmm. you know you can you have to know your numbers. And the only people that can afford to be sloppy are people that have long money and extra money to be able to make mistakes to cushion mistakes. But you shouldn't make mistakes on something as simple as math. <laughs> that's that's a great point. That's a really great point. Okay, so let's let's take it back a little bit uh, to when you were growing the company. Uh-huh. Um, do you have any examples of how you were able to, with with your hustle and your connections, uh, make yourself? privy to opportunities that weren't available to to the public yes i incentivize people to give me tips in exchange for referral commissions and 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 uh referral fees and and profit sharing arrangements i incentivized everybody around me and i made sure that they knew what i was interested in what what benefited me as the owner and ceo of a company you have employees and employees want to know how to make the boss happy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's other ways to make the boss happy besides great work, which is actually making the boss some money outside of your job description. So I made sure that that was a fun thing for them to get involved in. Wow. And, r- and right now, how many people work under you? 1,100. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. Yeah. That's impressive. How was that transition from um, from when you were 21 to now um, kind of going into a management role? How were you able to uh, acquire those skills when it came to people within your own organization and motivating them uh, appropriately? Because I didn't need motivation. You know, I, I motivated myself. So I, you know, surround them with positive motivational videos, inspirational biographies of other entrepreneurs that I admired and, and looked up to and studied. And I opened up a world as the way I saw it. You know, if I was a graffiti artist and I show somebody a wall of graffiti and it might look like garbage to them. But if I explain to them the letters and the art form and everything behind it. Uh, and the thrill of it, then they might look at graffiti differently when they're looking at walls next time when they're walking around in the street. So what I did was I showed them the world the way I saw it. I shared my vision. In addition to that, they saw my work ethic and all of that. And I made sure that I remained an inspirational figure and a positive motivator 
to everyone that I touched. And I also made sure that I achieved every goal that I said I would. That's good. It's so it sounds like essentially your thing is is leading by example when it comes to people within your own team. Yes. Did you ever have uh, business partners? No. No? Okay. Was that strategic as well? Uh, it wasn't strategic. It was just, uh, I, you know, uh, I couldn't find anybody early on in my career that could work as hard as me. You know, currently I have the chief operating officer of my company uh, who works just as hard, if not harder. But that was a decade-long relationship that took to develop, and now we're basically on the same pace. Mm-hmm. So you know, but that's uh, a ve- that's like the hope diamond. You don't find that anywhere. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That the reason I ask is because a lot of entrepreneurs, when they're starting off, they start off with partners, and then they discover that later on. Um, they weren't equally yoked, as they say. They The partners weren't on the same page, and then it causes problems in the business. It's the blind leading the blind. So it's like having somebody that doesn't know how to ice skate holding hands with somebody else that doesn't know how to ice skate. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. You're both going to fall or you're going to bring each other down. That's a great point because I'm terrible at ice skating and I always <laughs> take everybody down around me. So I, I can I can definitely um, relate to that example. Um, if you could synthesize your entire negotiating philosophy, how, how would you do that? What would you say your negotiation philosophy is? My negotiation philosophy is real simple. I say what's in it for them. What exactly do they want? The root of most negotiations or most problems and the root of life somehow, some way associates to money. Mm-hmm. So exactly what their needs are, you know, I find out what exactly they need and I like to listen. You know, early on in my career, I was very talkative and I wouldn't listen because I needed to prove a point that I knew what I was talking about. So I now listen to the other side and I study the actions and actions speak louder than words. It's a really great point. Um, I always tell people that uh, the least important, you are the least important person in every negotiation. And when you go in with that kind of focus on the other person and their needs, you're going, your outcome is going to be a lot better. I mean, there's different strategies. There's a sympathetic strategy. You know, some people, they say, well, you know, I need X amount of dollars because I have to use that money to do X. So, you know, you can't draw blood from a rock either. So, you know, like in a case in point is I'm looking to sell my property for, you know, $3 million because the next property I'm buying is $4 million And, uh, you know, I have to put up a million dollars of my money and I'm going to use the $3 million of your money, you know. Mm. And uh, so you have to kind of see exactly where where their transition is, you know. That makes sense. What is one negotiation tip that you would give to entrepreneurs? So if you could just say one thing, what would it be? Well, negotiations, it's like the UFC, you know, mixed martial arts. There's no rules Mm -hmm. and anything could happen, you know, and uh, a deal could die. Your opponent could die just like Kimbo Slice died the other day out of nowhere. Right. So... You know, it, 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 there, there is no rules to negotiation. There's no strategy. You know, it, it, that's the main thing. You need to know 
that a negotiation is like a mixed martial art fight. It could be a kick. It could be a punch. It could be, you know, a, a, a pulled hamstring that could make you win. You'd never know. Just you. What you need to do is know every single art form so you're prepared. So you have to study and uh, study different negotiation tactics. And uh, you have to understudy your opponent and figure out their strengths and figure out their weaknesses and figure out what makes them tick. And, uh, the, the, you know, I can't say it's centered around one. I think the one main thing is to expect the unexpected. This way you're never surprised. I like that. Yeah, that's it, it, it's, as I think about it more, I, it just <laughs> it, it sinks in deeper. Um, because there are a lot of people who read books like Getting to Yes, which is a phenomenal uh, starter book for for people who want to get into negotiation. But it kind of paints a, a flowery picture of what negotiations are. It's kind of like the, the gold standard. If everybody's on the same page, those niceties work. But sometimes you, you need to be ready to, to roll in the mud a little bit. You Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the main thing I would tell them, I have a book coming out in July, which I'll send you an autographed copy. Oh, thank you. The book is called The Heart of the Deal. And every deal has a nucleus. Every deal has the root and the heart. So in this book, I put some of the best negotiation tactics in business and franchising and real estate in life, in, in managing employees and managing people and inspirational. So I titled it The Heart of the Deal. So uh, it'll be coming out in July. And then, of course, uh, I'll send you a copy and uh, people can go to the website. It'll be official in July. Thank you. Wow, that's phenomenal. And I, I for obvious reasons, I love I love the title. And, yes. And, and for people who don't <laughs> who don't get get the title, um, Donald Trump wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. And it was a, uh, a best selling negotiation book. But I, I am looking forward to this one, too. Well, this one has a little more heart. This has a little more sincerity. So I do business a lot with heart. And uh, and it takes a lot of heart to be successful. And uh, this book has a different approach to uh, success. That's great. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you on again if you're if you're free. Like once that goes live, that launches, if we, if we can do anything to help you promote. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, press and media. I do CNN, ABC, Fox uh, and I do all sorts of media, big and small, because I love the audiences. You know, everybody has a different audience. Everybody has a different mindset. And uh, and I love to, to definitely be back on. I appreciate it. Thank you again for being here. We appreciate your insight and uh, best of luck with this book. Hey, thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And I am very excited to tell you we have our very first listener mail section. And so we have a letter today from Carmen. And she says, Hi Kwame, I've been listening to your podcasts and I must thank you for the information you've been sharing with me. I never really saw the need for negotiation skills because just the thought of it made me feel uncomfortable. And you could probably guess why. I was that person who was afraid to ask, afraid of being told no, and afraid of rejection. Thank you so much for being persistent and for following your passion to help people by teaching them the art of negotiation because you've surely helped me. Since listening to your podcasts, I've been going around asking for things, and true enough, the world hasn't stopped turning because I'm told no. In doing this exercise, I'm also allowing myself to deal with the uncomfortable feelings always present when I'm about to ask for something and when I'm told no. Thanks so much for empowering me to ask for what I want. And so this was, this really made my day. And then, 
uh, she actually called me and said that one of the things that she asked for was to, she asked her CEO whether or not they could bring me in as a negotiation consultant. And the CEO said yes. So opportunities everywhere. So if ever you feel afraid to ask for something that you want, just remember this story and go get it. You never know. And the worst thing that can happen is you're told no. And even if you're told no, you're going to be stronger for the next time that you need to ask for something that you want. So Carmen, thank you very much for this uh, this kind note. And I'm really glad to, to hear that things are, are turning around for you. So if there is anybody else out there that has a success story, please let me know. I want to share it. So maybe we'll even hear you in the uh, listener mail section. And it's not only for me. Uh, Your stories encourage the other listeners to go out there and actually use these techniques themselves. So if you have success, don't keep it to yourself. Let us all know. And I also want to give a shout out to Christy Charles, who is the one who connected my producer, Kobe, to um, Anthony Lolly. And so we had a great time on this interview. He had a lot of great insights. So Christy, thank you. Shout out to you in Cincinnati. So if you want to send me some love or some advice, some feedback, please shoot me an email. My email address is kwami at AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com. And uh, or send us something on our Facebook page or like, subscribe and share on iTunes. But until then, keep on negotiating and I hope you guys have a great week. I'll catch you later.